Hi, everyone. Good evening. Welcome to Evoke Therapy Program's broadcast. Finding you, I'm Dr. Brad Reedy. Today is Tuesday, May 23rd, 2023. For those of you that might be new to these broadcasts, this particular format that we do every other broadcast is a live Q&A. So this is for current and alumni families of our program. They can attend these live, ask questions. Anybody can send in questions in between episodes or at any time to webinar at evoketherapy.com. If you're just a listener to, to these podcasts, then you can send in the question and I'll answer it in the next available podcast. So anybody can send in. So with that, I'm going to get into the pre-submitted questions. Somebody writes, have you heard of a new therapy called TMS, transcranial magnetic stimulation for anxiety and depression? If so, can you explain how it works? I saw this question prior to the record button, prior to, to hitting the record button for this evening. And I told Sarah, who's moderating for me this evening, initially I told her to take it off because I've heard of TMS, but I don't have a lot of information. I have virtually no information about it, except for that I have heard from some people they found it to be very effective. And at first when I asked her to take it off, I, I thought I'm really not going to answer anything with this question. But then I thought it might be helpful for people to hear that I that I don't know what it's about. But with that, I will tell you this. As a therapist working with people for years, I have learned when people are interested and, and curious about exploring specific kind of techniques, even though I have a very um, clear idea of the kind of psychotherapy I, I do and, and, and the help that it that it's provided me first and foremost, and secondarily it's provided the clients that I work with, anytime somebody's interested in a specific technique or approach that might not be mine, I encourage them, if they're interested, to try it. And that some people will tell you that brain spotting or, or uh, you know, doing a specific kind of trauma treatment like EMDR makes a big difference in their life. And who am I to say? It, 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 for me, the reason I want to answer this question tonight, because that's what a therapist, that's what their position ought to be. It ought to be if it works for you, if it's something you're interested in, if you're looking for relief for, from a specific technique or approach that you think might be helpful, absolutely give it a try. So I, I don't know that information. I don't have any information, but that's what I would say if you were my client and you brought something like that to me. I'm going to read up on it and, and see what I can learn about it and, and talk about it the next time. Sarah, we can save that question for the next time and I can give my part two answer. The next question reads, I'm an identical twin and find and I find that my twin seems to be holding on tightly to me. It seems like it's a meshment. There are a lot of comparisons with being a twin. Do you have any experience with navigating the comparisons? I am married with children and she is not. So we live different and different lives. But I notice she prices all the difference. Prices, maybe maybe mentions or, or observes. Prices all the differences between us, and it's uncomfortable. I don't have a lot of data with dealing with twins. I have worked with a few sets of twins in my career, and I don't have any specific data around that, but this doesn't sound too much too different than, than siblings sometimes are. And, and something that I noticed about your post, about your question, you said I, I, that, that it seems like it's a measurement. And this goes back to the, the fundamental approach that we use here at Evoke that I use, which is it doesn't have to be 
clinically diagnostically inappropriate for you to say it doesn't feel comfortable with me. That's the empowerment I would offer you. That is to say, even if I didn't agree and I have no opinion about this, but let's say for for just the, the, the sake of a thought experiment that you described to me in detail of the interactions and I didn't necessarily identify it as enmeshment, that really isn't relevant. You get to decide what you feel comfortable with. Ultimately, that's not the only shift, but that is one of the grand shifts that people make in the work that we do here at Evoke is they they realize that they get to decide. And if you were to find your way into an Al-Anon meeting or a Codependence Anonymous meeting, which these groups were initially created for the spouses of alcoholics, that's what these groups were initially created for. Now they become more broadly applicable to all of our lives. And now we understand that codependency is just a way of describing attachment issues, attachment wounding, attachment trauma, and, and, and a, a, an unhealthy or unevolved way of relating to other people. That's what codependency is. And of course, I, I have a handful, six or seven, I'm sure, broadcasts that address that specifically if you're more interested but, but now the topic in these meetings has, has become more broad. And what you learn in those meetings is that you get to decide your boundary. I've said this before, that when I hear people quote me, and, and that comes back to me sometimes. Sometimes I get to observe people quoting me, but sometimes it comes back to me where someone said, if you were listening to Brad, if, if Brad Reedy was talking to you, he would say X, Y, or Z. Oftentimes, it's not accurate because they, they think that what I would say is that there's a right way, that this is the right boundary, that you should do it this way. And of course, that is antithetical to everything that I believe. I, I might operate that way from my own wounding, from my own trauma, for sure. If you walked around and, and interviewed my family members, they would say, dad operates, Brad operates like there is one right way and it's his way because that's my trauma, that's my wounding. But But because of that, trauma, that wound, because of the work that I've done in that area, I realize that, that what I'm striving for is just to be myself. And what that means is that I get to decide my boundaries. I get to decide what I'm comfortable with or, or what I'm not comfortable with. So when you say it, it, it fits, it's consistent with the definition of, of enmeshment, my response is, okay, that's interesting. But even if it didn't, you get to decide what you're comfortable with. Of course, if you're like me, and everybody is a little bit like me and a, a little bit different than me, of course, but if, if we're like each other, you're going to find it difficult to set a boundary from that place of this is what I feel comfortable with, right? We want to stand on the ground of I'm right. This is the right or the appropriate way to think or believe or behave. And what you're doing is the inappropriate way to think or, or believe or, or behave. That's the ground that we want to stand on because it makes us feel unassailable, right? That, that, that we, we imagine that when we come from that place of we are right, that, that there's no attack that could be made on it. And of course, it's quite the contrary. In fact, it will likely be more attacked when we present our idea, our boundary, our preference, our request, our expression, when we frame it in terms of it's the right way to do it, it will likely be more 
attack. But in Al-Anon, in Codependence Anonymous, in Families Anonymous, in AA, in NA, you learn that you get to decide what you're comfortable with. And that's where your boundaries come from. And when they come from that place, it is the most, it's the most, it's the strongest position that you can take. Uh, There's been conversations in my family recently where we've been having a friendly argument or debate about something, truly a friendly argument or debate about something, about an idea. And somebody will insert, well, that's just what I feel comfortable with almost tongue in cheek to just make the point that in our family, when you make that statement, it, it, it's enough. In Al-Anon, they say that no is a complete sentence. This is exactly what they're referring to. So I would support you in, in setting boundaries with what you're comfortable with. And your sibling, who happens to be a twin, their over-identification with you, their, their comparison with you, their sounds like clinging to you, causing you to feel uncomfortable with the, the, the level of proximity proximity and closeness, that that, that, that behavior or that, that pattern for them is something that they're doing, but it's going to take, take the greatest risk of all, which is to tell the people that we love, that we care about, that matter to us, or in some cases, the authority figures in our life, to tell them how we feel, what we expect in terms of how, how to be treated. But so many of us, I've been thinking about this a lot lately. This is a really cool idea. So many of us, because we grew up with parents that hadn't dealt with their own narcissistic wounding, I'm not talking about clinical narcissism, right? That threshold is much more rare. I'm talking about narcissism in terms of a parent needing to be good having a big ego, not needing, not wanting to be bad or make mistakes, feeling picked on when you share your anger or your hurt with them, feeling overly criticized when you set a boundary, feeling threatened when you set a boundary. I'm talking about that kind of narcissistic wounding. Because we grew up with big people around us who weren't open to feedback, who, who hadn't done the, the, the work necessary to, to let go of the ego in parenting, We learn how to tiptoe. We learn how to please. We learn that if we confront the big people, the teachers. You know, one of the difficulties about the children that that I work with or the parents that I work with and their children is that a lot of children recognize the lack of health with their school teachers, psychologically speaking. The way that they get talked to. The the ideas. My, my, My own daughter a few years ago there was a phone call from the teacher and the premise of the phone call was that my daughter was acting out when in listening to the teacher, my daughter was just not tolerating being shamed. And when we gently had that conversation, the teacher was actually able to own it. And I thanked her profusely saying, thank you for for owning it, especially in front of my daughter. So, so few adults are willing to do that because of ego because of undealt with narcissistic wounding. So back to the question, because we're also conditioned to take care of our parents' ego, to feel responsible, to carry that around, we learn in these situations that, that we believe, we, we experience in these situations that if we tell our truth, if we set our, our, our boundary, if we 
confront somebody on the way that they're treating us, even if the confrontation is gentle. We have the experience psychologically when they get upset that we've done something wrong because that was our background. Years ago, my therapist said to me something so profound, much more general than what I'm I'm describing today. She said, compromised people defeat you today. She said to me, compromised people defeat you today because compromised people defeated you when you were younger. And it hit me. All the people in the world, whether it be from, if I'm working with a a realtor or somebody working on my my plumbing or a a car salesperson or the mail carrier or a stranger in a store, because my parents were compromised, because we were supposed to, as kids, not confront that that about them, not stand up to that. And they held power over us, not just physical, financial power over us, which, of course, they held over us, but they also held psychological power over us. They were the big people. We assumed what they said and what they did intrinsically. We assumed it was the right thing, that they knew more than we did. So now I go around being afraid to tell my truth to people because I'm afraid of stepping on their their narcissistically wounded toes, so to speak, and because their reaction might be angry or upset in some way with me, I take that on just like I did when I was a child. That's the idea. That's what happens to us. That's why at Evoke with our intensives program, with these broadcasts, so much of what I'm trying to do is help parents experience this, this, this ego death. This idea that you don't have to be good or, in other words, you already are good. You're good and bad and everything in between. And you're lovable. And you're in perfect, fallible state. You're lovable and you're worthy. And that's why I model so much self-disclosure because I want you to know, just like with that first question, it's not about being perfect. It's not about getting it right all the time. It's about being able to show up human as you are. And and then that's enough. So I know I kind of went sideways on that question, but there's just a lot in there to talk about, to consider. The next person writes, my 17-year-old son is starting his 10th week at Evoke. His therapist is recommending aftercare for for substance treatment, boarding school. My family, sisters, parents, and others are telling us to bring him home. My heart wants to bring him home. My head knows that it is the the wrong thing. How do I talk to my family? Even when I tell them I don't want their opinion, they are giving it. And it is devastating to defend what my heart doesn't want to do. This is the coolest question in the world. I I love that you asked it. I, I wonder if you're on this evening or if this was is this a person on here this evening Sarah was this sent in as a pre-submitted question I'm wondering Um, they're on this evening wonderful I'm so glad that you're here the fact that your family is doing that to you is in part I am sure the culture 
the, the, the psychological climate, the dynamics in your family, your extended family that your child is suffering under. I, I, I can't emphasize what I'm about to say too much. I'm teaching a masterclass for therapists on Friday, this Friday. And this is going to be my opening principle, my opening idea, which is the idea of, of staying humble. And I, I, what I mean by that is they don't know the right thing. I, I don't know the right thing. For that matter, you don't know the right thing. We're all doing the best that we can. And it is really, really, really hard to parent. So when somebody says to you, this is what you should do, the very fact that they, that they have the idea that they know is the problem in the first place. And the fact, even more so, that they will continue to say it even though you've asked them not to or didn't ask for it in the first place, that is the pathology that your child is trying to break free from. That is not the way that psychologically aware people talk or think. I can't tell you how many times I have had clients who have um, told me that, that they've gone to a, a spouse or a parent or a sibling with a, with a question or a dilemma, a, a dilemma that they've shared with me in, in therapy, and that the, the, their, their loved one, their family member, has opinions about what they should, should do. And I think to myself, I say this sometimes, isn't it fascinating? Listen to this. This is the key. Isn't it fascinating that the person that you're talking to who has essentially no training in psychology or relationships, none, except for their own lived experience, isn't it fascinating that they think they know what you should do and yet somebody like me with a doctoral degree and 30 years of experience as a psychotherapist, isn't inclined to tell you what you should do. In fact, it's not just a technique. I don't know what you should do. Because if the goal of psychotherapy, which I believe it is, if the goal of psychotherapy is to become your most authentic self, that, that symptoms and, and diagnoses are, are the, the deepest part of ourselves, speaking to, to, to the world in the only way they know how, the only way those parts of us know how, those needs, the inner child, if you're, if you're familiar with that, that idea, or soul, if you're familiar with the Jungian idea of a soul, that the, that's the expression, the symptoms are the expression of the, the unlived life, right? Because we're living with shoulds and have-tos and musts and the right way to do things, our soul develops symptoms to express the distress that it feels of not living our authentic life. And if therapy is trying to help people become their authentic, real selves, then how could I possibly tell you what to do? When Carl Jung and Joseph Campbell said, and they said it very similar, if the path before you is clear, it is someone else's path. The idea is that part of becoming human is falling into a hole, going the wrong way, running into a wall, tripping and falling. 
There's nothing more universally experienced than the imperfection, the beautiful imperfection of being a human and discovering who we are. There's nothing more universally experienced. And yet people still have this idea that if you do the right thing according to somebody else, that somehow you'll be spared from pain. That is, if, if you want just another metaphorical reference, and I happen to be a Star Wars geek, but that essentially was the dark side. Darth Vader experienced a lot of trauma, specifically the, the last one was the death of his wife. And as a result of this, in his world, in his psyche, his uh, unwillingness to feel pain, he gravitated toward uh, the dark side, which promised, by the way, that it could prevent death and suffering and pain and sadness and grief and hurt and loneliness. So Darth Vader, and it looks quite obvious because he's dressed in black and his theme music plays every time he shows up and he breathes and talks with this menacing sound, right? George Lucas made it clear for us. But Darth Vader essentially did not think he was destroying the universe. He thought he'd found the solution to save it. And that's the way that we think. We think that we can control and prevent suffering. Yoda, on the other hand, metaphorical, symbolic uh, uh, of the, the force, the, the light side, not the dark side, had a different way. His way was mindfulness, presence, feeling grief when it came into his heart, feeling sadness, being curious about, about, about fear, being wary of the, the comfort and protection that anger gives us. Now, the reason I'm getting very philosophical with you is because these concepts are universal. And people who think, people who believe that they can simply dictate and point out what you should do. I don't want to say something too strong, but but find some space separate from them to find peace. I'm not, I don't mean to tell you what to do, but what I mean is it, they might not be your people, even if you're related to them. If they, it, you know, my, my, my wife says this all the time. If I tease my children and when they were younger, younger if, I, if I tickled them or I was teasing them, and they would say no, and I didn't stop. My wife would say, Brad, no means no. Teach your children, your daughters especially, but all of your children. Teach them that when they say no, that it deserves to be respected. And I don't want to be melodramatic about this. But if people want to impose their values on you without your permission, even, even after you've made a clear request, no means no. It really, really does. And if you grow up in families where no doesn't mean no, and people have the, 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 the right to impose themselves on other people, that's part of what your child is trying to break free from. I'm sure of it. I'm confident of it. All right. Thank you for that. I'm so glad you asked that question. Next question comes in. It's a three-parter, okay? Somebody writes, I am writing in with a question about a brilliant 18-year-old boy, the son of good friends, who went to wilderness therapy and then to an excellent therapeutic boarding school 
following two years of, of school refusal, anxiety, rigid thinking, therapy, resistance. The boy did very well in wilderness therapy and, and therapeutic boarding school. He opened up, learned tools, made air phase, regained his confidence in school and performed at a very high level. He left treatment to finish high school at a rigorous institution. Within weeks, he was back to debilitating anxiety and school refusal, not leaving the house without elaborate measures to avoid seeing people, etc. He refused to look at his transition plan from therapeutic boarding school, let alone follow through on any of it. He eventually did a second short stint in wilderness therapy after much resistance, but this time it was a failure. He didn't buy in, was on hunger strike for most of the duration. He left on his 18th birthday. His parents brought him home and he has languished since. He won't agree to talk to anyone or, or to any further treatment. School is not even on the table anymore. Part three. He says that his brain doesn't work. He wants his parents to, quote, fix the problem, unquote, but will not agree to anything. As you can imagine, their home is a difficult place and there is a younger son whose life is upended by all of this. What should the parents do? What can they do? What do parents do when the best treatment has failed and they are back to square one? And that place is one of a child refusing to leave the house or function in any way. He isn't suicidal or a threat to himself. It's a really painful and difficult question. And I have all the empathy in the world for the family and for you who cares about this family, obviously, and is watching them go through the pain. In essence, when we're dealing with a child or parent or spouse, or a brother, or a sister. It's helpful to imagine to yourself that that person will never change. And then ask yourself, what am I to do? Knowing, or with this thought experiment, that that person will never change, what am I to do? You know, the folks that go to Al-Anon, and this is where I'm leading, the folks that go to Al-Anon, or... or Codependents Anonymous or Families Anonymous or Adult Children of Alcoholics, the children, the, the folks that go to these programs come from a variety of backgrounds. Some have lost a spouse or a parent to addiction. Some have lost a child to addiction. But they still go to the meetings. Some are in the early stages of addictive behavior or, or toxic behavior and they're looking as many people do for, for, for secrets, for keys to this dilemma. So I'm, I'm going to give you the answer, but I, I want to be clear about this. If these folks were my clients, I would be much slower to give this answer. I would give it very gently because it's, 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 it's a hard one to say. The answer is to work on themselves. To, to, to figure out, see, the, the, the pain that they're feeling is theirs and their responsibility, not the child's. I, again, this, this is, it's too far away for me to make any specific diagnosis, but let me present to you the idea, the possibility, for example, that after leaving wilderness therapy and a therapeutic boarding school and going back to school, there's a part of me that wonders if that was the right thing for him. Maybe he was just doing it because he was supposed to. Maybe he wants to be like other people or, or like everybody else. He tried to fit his, his, his square peg into a round hole. And now that he's failed at it and he's having that experience that I can't do 
what other people do as easily as they do it. He feels so devastated, so destroyed and distressed over it. And he has to figure that out. But the answer to the parents is he's not their problem. They are. And that's the part. I, I only mean that philosophically. If I were talking to somebody that I, that I loved or cared about or that I was working with as a client, I wouldn't say it this bluntly. But for the purposes of education, I will explain it. Their serenity and peace of mind is their responsibility. Their, their sadness and grief is their responsibility. Their anger, their disappointment, their expectations are, are their responsibility. So they have to go and get treatment for them. And if the only solution, this is important, you guys, if the only solution for their distress is for their child to turn it around, it's too much pressure on the child. It's not appropriate in terms of child development and parenting. So we go and we take care of ourselves. I talk about this idea that, that the adage in our culture that you're only, as, you're only as happy as your least happy child, that idea is toxic. And yet that, that concept, that, that saying goes unchallenged so often. We have children that struggle. We have children that are neurologically diverse. We have children that develop addictions. We have children that, that are struggling with depression and anxiety. And not only do we have some part in those diagnoses, meaning that, that as the parents, there, there is, there's some interaction, some dynamic of which we're a part of in those diagnoses and disorders. Not only is that true, but even if that wasn't true, if the only way that we're going to get our peace of mind and our happiness and our joy back is by the child getting better and being healthy and doing the things that we think, that maybe even most people think are the healthier right things to do, we're placing an inappropriate burden on the child. We're making the child responsible for our lives. So what I would say to you, to them, is go to Al-Anon. Go to Codependence Anonymous. Go to Adult Children of Alcoholics. This slide, I won't repeat this later because I repeat this at the end. Every time this slide, we ask all current parents to attend six of any combination of these 12-step support groups, alanon.org, coda.org, familiesanonymous.org, or adultchildren.org. We also offer refugerecovery.org. But you don't go to these classes, you guys. You don't go to these classes where they offer you tricks and hacks and, and, and workarounds that, will, that you'll be more effective at fixing your, your, your child or fixing your spouse. That's not what they learn. In fact, what they will tell you is we're not going to talk about them. You can talk about them, but we're not going to focus on them and their disorder and their addiction and their disease, their, their mental health diagnoses. That's secondary or tertiary. What we're going to talk about is how are you dealing with it? How are you relating to it? What are you doing to take care of yourself? Here's the great paradox. And I want to be careful about this because this can backfire on me. But the great paradox is when you stop trying to fix the child and you start trying to fix yourself, when you stop making the child the project 
and you make your life and your serenity the project, you tend to have a, a bigger and more positive influence on the person who's struggling. That's the great paradox. When you surrender, trying to, to control things that you can't, trying to fix other people, and you focus on trying to fix yourself and finding your own serenity, the great paradox is your, your, your influence becomes more powerful and positive than it ever was or ever could be when you're focused on trying to fix the other person. And I just send love to you and to them because it's a, it's a very, very difficult, difficult situation. Next question. Somebody writes, I watched a webinar last night about this, but can you also talk about why wellness therapy isn't always the last stop and the fix? Well, that's two different questions. Um, because I don't think it's the last resort or the last stop because, um, well, there's, there's two ways to think about this. Number one, it doesn't need to be the last stop. It could be something we could intervene earlier. Many of our students, most of them in my experience, would say and have said to me, Everybody should come to this. Everybody should experience this. I mean, imagine even more so, more, more relevant to our, to our today world, unplugging yourself, going out into nature, spending time reflecting on yourself and, and, and where you are, practicing developing a, a mindfulness practice, learning to feel and communicate and problem solve. I mean, Everybody could benefit from all of those features of wilderness therapy. Healthy sleep, healthy diet, exercise, outdoors, on and on and on. So, so number one, it doesn't need to be the last stop. But I think what you're asking is, why isn't, is it not the last stop in terms of why doesn't it fix people? Because that's a lifelong project. For me, the goal of wilderness therapy, as with any intervention, is, is to, to make the project more clear, to give you some tools, some insights, give you some hope, even some happiness and joy, maybe even develop meaning, maybe even understand what, what, the, what the diagnosis or the issue is and where it came from. But I'm in therapy, as I've said many times. I've been with my current therapist for 24 years. I've been in therapy for around 30 years in total of my 55 years on this planet. And I don't go there because I'm in crisis. I don't be, go there because my marriage is on the rocks or my children are struggling. I go there as a practice. And I'll be working on my stuff until the day that I die. I don't ever want to arrive. Please, I don't ever want to arrive. If I thought this was about fixing me and I and I arrived at the conclusion that I was fixed, what a disaster that would be. It's like my friend who's a recovering alcoholic said, he said, if somebody were able to convince me that I wasn't an alcoholic, the first thing I would do is go and drink. If I thought I was fixed and had arrived, I would stop learning and exploring. I would stop growing. I say this, this next thing, 
it's not literal, but it's close. My grandparents, from, from the best that I could observe from my vantage point, and I owe a lot to my grandparents because they made sure, my mother's parents, that we didn't live in, live in poverty. They paid for us to live in a, a nice area and made sure that we had the basics. After my parents got divorced and my dad didn't pay for anything. So I'm grateful for them. That, that they, I attribute to a lot of what I have to them. So, so I'll, I'll give you that caveat. Having said that, it seems to me as though they, they figured out everything there was to figure out by the time they were 30, 35 years old, long before I came on the scene. They were sure of themselves. They knew all the answers. They knew the right way to live, the right way to be. And there was no dialogue. There was no openness. There was no evolution. There was no learning in the 15 or so years that I got to spend around them, listening to them talk to my mother and, and, and hearing her talk about what it was like to be their child. So the reason we don't think of it as the last stop or the fix is because that would be devastating. It would be the worst. And we would be selling to parents and to children and to people something that's just fundamentally not true about our human existence which is if we don't arrive, if we're not fixed, quote-unquote, we keep learning, we keep exploring new ideas, new insights. Somebody said once, and I love this, if you're the same person you were 15 years ago, you've wasted 15 years. It's why I, I love when I hear people talk about, when, when, I, when I'm talking to young people about marriage, what I teach is find somebody who's open to growth, who's willing to evolve and, and wants to grow beside you. Because finding fixed attributes or even fixed values in a person. My values have evolved. My perspective, my, my life paradigm has evolved. What I'm grateful for is that I have a wife who's far from perfect, but who's also working on herself, goes to the same therapist. In fact, she started before me. She's been with our therapist for 25 years. And that's what I'm grateful for because that, to me, suggests that we'll be able to make it through whatever comes. So last stop, fix, absolutely not. This is a lifelong project. You're working and evolving and growing, hopefully. Learning new things till the day you die. I hope. All right, folks. Looks like that's all the questions for this evening. I really appreciate them. Love the questions this evening. Upcoming events and announcements. My two books, The Journey of the Rogue Parent and The Dacity to Be You are on Amazon and Audible. If you want to do a deep dive into your own work, the, the, the work that I've been talking about tonight, um, the next offering for our Finding You Intensive, which is not a last stop, is a therapy accelerator if you're already involved in therapy or it's a therapy springboard if you're new to therapy. Our next available offering is June 21st through 25th. In fact, we're, we're offering free coaching sessions for the June program, June 21st through 25th. We have online offerings. The next offering online is July 14th through 16th. It's half the time and a third of the cost, and you don't have to travel. So if finances and time 
are resources that are at a premium for you, the online option is a wonderful option. We developed it during the pandemic. I was skeptical myself and I kept it because I saw how much good we could do online over a two and a half day period of time. Returning to you is for those who have been to Finding You. So October 11th through 15th is the next offering. June 23rd through 25th, I'm doing a Finding You weekend in the UK. There is a waiting list for that. So if you're interested in that at all, you can contact intensivesatavoketherapy.com and find out what the waiting list looks like. We have custom finding connections for couples and parents workshops. So we also have finding family workshops. So if you want to come as a family or as a couple, as co-parents, contact intensives at evoketherapy.com for more information. We have support groups for current and alumni families. May 25th, that's in two days, is our next offering at 6.30 p.m. Mountain Time. Once a month, we have an offering just for alumni families. June 27th is our next offering at 6.30 p.m. Mountain Time. And we have a once a month support group for our intensives program. June 13th at 6 p.m. Mountain Time is our next offering. Contact Sarah D at evoketherapy.com or visit evoketherapy.com slash family involvement for more information. If you want a coach that can do virtual coaching with you that has been trained in the attachment-based model that we talk about here for clarifying boundaries, for, for transitioning home after treatment, for, for helping you through some of the questions that you bring. If you want somebody, couples therapy, individual parenting, family, anything like that. We have over 40 coaches available. Contact coaching at evoketherapy.com if that's something of interest to you. All of these broadcasts are available on Spotify or, or your favorite podcast app. Just search Finding You and Evoke Therapy Podcast or go to soundcloud.com on your computer and search Finding You there. You can also watch the video rebroadcast of these on Evoke's YouTube channel. You can find Evoke Therapy programs and me, Dr. Brad Reedy, on Twitter and Instagram using the handle at Evoke Therapy or at Dr. Brad Reedy. You can find the Evoke Tensives on Instagram using the handle at Evoke Therapy Intensives. On Facebook, you can find us by searching Evoke Therapy programs or Evoke Therapy Intensives. And of course, we have a blog that is maintained and, up and kept up each week from our therapeutic staff and, and various people in our program. Wonderful content. If you want to give back for people that can't afford therapy, if that's in your heart, the three charitable partners that we work with and donate to include ChooseMentalHealth.org, SkyStheLimitFund.org, or EvokeFamilyFoundation.org. You can earmark your donation for a specific population or for a specific program if you'd like to. My next broadcast will be May 25th at 6.30 p.m. Mountain Time. I'll be talking about neuro neurodiversity, so that's 48 hours from, from now. I'll be talking about the autism spectrum and other learning disabilities and neurodiversity. So happy to do that. May 25th, 6.30 p.m. Mountain Time. Look forward to that. All right, folks, for those that, that have joined us, um, thank you for joining us. I hope this is a helpful point of contact for the people that love you and the people that you love. Thank you for showing up and being willing to your, do your work. Have a great evening, and I'll talk to you next time. Bye-bye. <laughs>